So in the uh, field of social psychology, uh, there's this thing called illusory superiority. And it is a condition of cognitive bias wherein a person overestimates their own qualities and abilities in relation to the same qualities and abilities of other people. So they'll do these surveys, you know, to kind of test this. And in uh, one such survey at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, 68% uh, of people rated themselves in the top 25% for teaching ability. So they asked the teachers, you know, the professors, uh, how good do you think you are as a teacher in comparison to the other teachers? And 68% put themselves in the top 25%. So just mathematically, that doesn't make sense, right? How could, you know, almost 70% of the teachers think they're in the top 25%? Well, it's because we overestimate ourselves, generally speaking. 94% uh, rated themselves as above average. There's actually this thing called, the uh, it's like this above average bias. So generally, when you ask anybody about anything, <laughs> just generally anything, people think they're above average at it. You know, just anything, like a, running <laughs> or like bowling, like driving, like just anything that you ask people about, they generally think they'll put themselves in the above average category. Uh, in a similar survey, 87% of Master of Business Administration students at Stanford rated their academic perf performance as above the median. So again, like 90% of people thought they're probably above the median. So again, mathematically, that doesn't make sense. But it is this thing that we all just tend to have overconfidence in ourselves, in our ability to do things in relation to other people, just generally speaking, right? It, uh, the reason I bring this up is because I was actually, I was reading this article um, about Gen Z and uh, millennials and Gen Z. Gen Z is often called the change generation because of all the, uh, because of basically the state of the world as this generation is growing up, right? So both millennials and Gen Z. There's been a lot of adversity. There have been a lot of kind of the ugliness of society has been exposed. There's a lot of information available. And so there's a, there's a growing uh, desire to see change in the world. And you see it kind of even through social media. You'll see it online. There's this passion. There's this passion to have purpose in life. Like this desire to have a passion, to have a purpose, and to live for that. Millennials and Gen Z don't like just working. You know, just like doing a job. They want to know that that's attached to some purpose. Millennials and Gen Z don't accept just ch the, the state of the world, the status quo. They want to see change. Now, this can be a powerful thing. I've seen it even in church. It seems like uh, the younger generations, and you know, I'm a millennial, technically. Uh, there's a great, I see even now, there's a great opportunity here. And I feel this, and I have this sense, even in light of the coronavirus and just the things that are going on in the world, it's like, hey, can we, we shouldn't just accept things the way that they are. And there's this passion, and there's this desire, and you see people kind of getting excited about this and posting things all the time. Now, it can be a powerful thing, 
but it can also be a dangerous thing, right? Uh, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. And when we overestimate our knowledge, our ability, what we, our expertise in things, and we couple that with just great passion, a lot of times you don't get the, the kind of change, the kind of gospel change that we're looking for. You get a lot of strife and a lot of division and a lot of craziness and confusion. And sometimes when you look at the world, that is also what we see. And so the question today is, um, how do we channel that great passion, that affection, I think that a lot of us feel to do something, to see a change in the world, or to, to pursue certain things, to find that purpose? How do we develop the deep, the deep affections that are informed by the gospel, that are informed by what God says, that's going to lead us to the kind of change that God desires in us and in the world. Uh, that's what we're going to look at today. And so if you guys have your Bibles, let's go ahead and open them up to the book of Philippians. Uh, Philippians, we're still in chapter 1, and we're really taking this um, you know, we want to go through it thoroughly. And so uh, chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 6. Uh, we're going to take a, a part of what we looked at last week and then uh, go into the next section. And so uh, Philippians chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. And again, the question we'll kind of be looking at is, how do I develop the deep, deep affections that are informed by the gospel? So we're going to look at today. And so... Uh, it's right up there on your screen if you don't have your own Bible. And this is God's word, and it says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. So let's stop right there for a second. How do I develop the deep affections that are informed by the gospel? So here's point one. It's kind of an obvious point, but we'll, we'll kind of flesh it out. But point one is dedicate yourself to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Dedicate yourself to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, if you look at the text again, here's what Paul says in verse 6. He says, I'm sure of this, that he who, he who began a good work and you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He's saying, I am sure that you are saved. Basically in verse 6. He's saying, I have assurance of your salvation. Right? And then if you look in verse 7, he says, it is right for me to feel this way about you all. It is right for me to feel this way about you all. Now, that word right, right there, is the same word for, like, just or righteous. So Paul's not saying that it's just correct 
for me to feel this way about you, like the difference, be, you know, it's, it's right or it's like a wrong answer kind of thing. He's saying it is, it is just for me to feel this way. This isn't just something based on Paul's personal gut feeling. He's saying my feeling is based on truth. Now, he gives two reasons for that. Okay, first of all, he sees evidence of grace in them. Right, so he's saying, you're all partakers of grace with me. He says, in my imprisonment and my defense of the gospel, and we've, we kind of went over this last week, but the idea of the koinonia, right, their partnership, the gospel partnership they have, the fellowship that they have, he's saying, okay, well, I see that you guys actually care about the gospel because you have done things to show that you, you love the gospel, that it's actually, you believe in it, it's bearing fruit in your life, right? So... Uh, they've, they've given a gift to Paul while he was in prison. You know, they themselves are, are their, like, partners with Paul. So that's one of the reasons he's saying, I'm sure that you guys are saved. Right? I have assurance that Jesus is going to carry you. Remember last week we talked about the he and you, right? That he and you is going to carry you all the way to the end. How do I know that? Because I see this evidence of faith. But the second thing he says is kind of weird, the reason he gives, why he's assured of their salvation. He says, it's right for me to be assured of your salvation because I have this deep affection for you. Right? He's saying, I hold you in my heart. He says, I yearn for you with the affection of Jesus Christ. Isn't that kind of a weird thing, right? Like, it would be one, because we understand the other ones. Like, you're bearing fruit in the gospel, right? And the Bible talks about that. It's like, how do you know you're saved? Well, you know, if you are in Christ, then Christ is in you, and he's going to bear fruit, the fruit of righteousness. You're going to grow uh, in affection for you. You're going to love Jesus more, and also you're going to become more like Jesus. So that is a, you know, it's bearing the fruit of righteousness. But then the second thing he says is, I know you must be saved because I really care about you deeply. Paul is using his own affections his own deep affections as evidence of their salvation. Think about that. That's kind of weird, right? Like if I went up to somebody and said, hey, man, I'm sure you're saved. And they say, why? And it's like, because I love you, man. Like that's weird. But Paul is so confident in his own affection for Jesus, right? He's so confident in saying that, okay, I, I know that my life is all about Jesus. This is really all I care about in life, like the main thing. And so the fact that I can connect with you on this deep level tells me that you, your faith must be genuine, that you, your love for Christ must also be genuine. Like Paul's basically saying, I could never feel this deeply connected to another person with the yearning of Jesus unless they also really loved Jesus in that way. Isn't that kind of insane? Like either Paul is incredibly arrogant, right, to say like, well, you know, there's no way we'd even be able to connect because that's how close I am to Jesus. Or he actually just loves Jesus that like he knows, he's, he knows that that's all his life is about. Not in terms of righteousness, right? Because Paul's not talking, he's not, he doesn't say, I'm so righteous that if I feel close to you, then you must be Christian. He's saying, like, the fact that we can connect, the fact that I have this deep affection, means I know that, that you really love Jesus. 
have you experienced this kind of affection ever to be able to say to someone, I know you must be a believer because I wouldn't be able to have this deep affection for you unless you sincerely loved God. This is the kind of affection that God has for the church. You know, when we talk about the images that are used in Scripture to describe the church, right? Like that it's like a family, you know, it's the household of God. It's this building. It's this temple. You know, it's one body. To have this kind of yearning for one another that comes from Christ's love himself. The thing is, and we've talked about this the past couple of weeks, right? But the idea of, of that koinonia what we, how we tr- what we usually translate as fellowship, it doesn't come from a commitment to like monthly dinners, you know, or or game nights. It doesn't come from a commitment to uh, some other thing like uh, you know basketball or golf or like the Dodgers or so. You know, it's like th- there's a temptation here, right, to turn Jesus into. S- into something like a chameleon, like, hey, Jesus can be applicable to you. There's this thing that we try to do in church sometimes where we want to make Jesus really relevant to people's lives. So it's like, whatever you're into, then you could fit Jesus into there, right? Like, if you're, if you're into hiking and, you know, you're, or you're into whatever, like skiing, or you're into, like, chess, you know, or you're into, you're into art, you know, you're, you're a foodie, you're this, you're that, like, you like to travel. It's like, whatever, we'll create a group, around that thing and then try to like inject Jesus into there and then it's like hey you can you can have Jesus as part of that but there's no real anything there there's no call there there's no transformation there and oftentimes i think we feel this disconnect right it's like well the bible says that we are supposed to be like this family you know there is this there's this partnership, there's this deep affection, there's this love, right? There's something that comes from Christ, this yearning, I hold you in my heart. There's this, what is that? Like, how come the Bible talks about that? But then when I go to church, it's not like that. Well, part of that disconnect could be explained this way. Do you have that affection for Jesus? Do you have that dedication, that commitment to the gospel? Because that is the basis for Paul experiencing this deep affection. It's not because he likes them. It's not because they have like common interests or like they work the same job. You know, it's like it has nothing to do with any of that. He's saying the reason that I feel this deep affection for you to the point that I know you must be saved is that the basis of our relationship is Jesus. That is the deep love, the deep affection that God has for the church. But for some reason, we keep trying to reverse engineer that deep affection without Jesus. It's not possible that way. Right? We, try, we keep trying to get community, the community part, without the Christ part. You can't have Christ-centered community without Christ. You can still have community. Like, I think for many people in the church, unfortunately, and, you know, culturally, this kind of just happened, I think, maybe when the church wasn't paying attention. But we somehow believe that if we just hung out enough, 
eventually we would find Christ-centered community, whether or not it was built around the word, whether or not it was built around the gospel, whether or not, you know, Jesus was actually being glorified and upheld there. And I'm not saying you can't have friendships and relationships, you know, based on and built on those other things. I think part of that is what we need to do in order to deliver the gospel, to share the gospel, to love people. But if you really want the deep affection that Paul is alluding to here, the one where you could look at somebody and say, man, like, you got to be a believer because my life's all about Jesus and there's no way we could even connect on this level without that. Then there must be a deep dedication to the gospel that we are committed to. Christ has for his church to know the deep affection of Christ for us as we grow in the deep dedication to the gospel that he's given us. Dedicate yourself. That's what I mean when I say dedicate yourself to the gospel of Jesus Christ and you will grow in that affection in those gospel partnerships and in, those, in that affection that God means the church to have for one another. Secondly, how can we have, how can we develop these uh, affections, gospel-informed affections? Pray for gospel-centered discernment in love. Pray for gospel-centered discernment in love. Now, Let's read in verse 9. It says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So Paul says, I have this deep affection for you. I love you guys so much. And like I yearn for you like Jesus, like with the yearning of Christ. And what does that lead Paul to do? What is the, the very next thing that he says after that? He says, I'm praying for you. So this deep love that I have for you, this deep affection of Jesus that I have for you, leads me to pray for you. Isn't that interesting, particularly in our culture? A culture that thinks that prayer is like trite. You know, to say something like thoughts and prayers or to tell somebody that you're praying for them is like so, is considered to be like so nothing. It's, it's, a, it's a, so much less than doing some kind of action, right? Than, than giving some kind of service. And I'm not, I'm not trying to downplay the importance of service or action, of course, our prayers must also be supplemented or, or complemented with action. But there's just, I, I feel like there's just a, a lack of recognition of the power of prayer. When Paul says this to them, when he's saying, I'm praying for you, here's what I'm praying for you. He's not saying this just to encourage them. You know, it's not like, Paul prays, and then the point of him praying is just so that he can tell them so that they'll be encouraged by it. When Paul prays, he's praying because he believes that his prayers will be answered. 
He believes that this is where the power is. I love you, and so because I love you, I'm going to pray for you so that what I pray for actually happens. Now, what does he pray for them? Now, first of all, he prays that their love would abound. Right? Now, Paul doesn't specify what the, the object of this, of this loving. You know, he just says that your love will keep on growing, essentially. And so, uh, what is Paul referring to? You know, other, is it other people? Is that their love for other people? Or is it their love for God? Um, you know, it's not completely clear, although I would say that it doesn't seem like Paul really has a specific reference in mind. He's saying that he wants their love in general to grow. And second of all, what he prays for them is, so he prays for the love to abound, right? And then he prays for knowledge and discernment. This is with all knowledge and discernment. Now, Paul uses this particular word for knowledge here uh, 15 times in his letters. It has to do with a, a spiritual knowledge, a knowledge of the things of God, knowing God or his will, knowing his truth. Now, there's a couple things we need to recognize here. So Paul says, here's what I'm praying for you guys. I'm praying for that you'll grow in love. You know, and I'm praying that as you grow in that love, you will have this knowledge and discernment of how to love. Do you pray? Uh, I mean, one is, uh, there, there's two levels here, right? One is that when Paul loves somebody, he prays for them to grow in love. Because that is loving. Like, that's the way that Paul loves them. You know, so he's not saying, like, oh, I pray that you'll, you know, like, get this job or whatever. You know, like, he's not praying, okay, I pray that this would work out. You know, that you'd have a happy this, you know, household or whatever. Like, no, he's saying, the way that I can love you, like, this deep affection that I have for Christ that we share together, what that's leading me to is to pray for you that you would be a loving person, that you would grow in love, that you would grow in the love that Jesus has for us, and that you would be able to love other people. And I'm, I'm not only going to pray that you actually love people, that that love grows, but I'm going to pray that there is this knowledge and discernment. Now, that's very important for us to, to recognize because a couple reasons. One, no matter how selfless we think we are, we're inherently selfish, right? That's just, I mean, it's a, it's a part of sin. It's a part of just the nature of, of who we are. We are going to think about ourselves first. Everything you think about starts with you. And oftentimes, even when we think we're doing something loving, a lot of times, you know, there's all these other motivations kind of rolled up in there, right? It's like, what are they going to think of me if I do this or if I don't do this, right? That's not about the person, right? That's about you, right? That's, that's about me if I'm thinking about that. Or if I think like, well, what would a good father do? Or what would a good husband do? Or what would a good pastor do? Like if those are the core of the motivation, again, that's not about the other people. That's about me. So we all have that. That's part of us. We have to recognize that. But secondly, we don't inherently know how to love people. We are not good at love. Many of us, this is probably one of the, the core things of humans that all of us overestimate. We all think we're above average at this. But naturally, inherently, we're not good at this. 
It's important because sympathy and compassion are neither powerful nor helpful without truth. You know, there's like a, there's a common um, TV trope, right, in uh, family sitcoms. It's, the, it's like the pet trope. You guys know what I'm talking like, It's like, you know, the kids, they really want a pet, right? So then they beg their parents. You know, they go up to their parents like, oh, please, you know, let's, let's get a pet, you know. So very eventually the parents break down, right? They go to the pet store. They all go to the store. Kids pick out something, right? Whatever. They give, give him a name, you know, like Spot, whatever, Spot, something like that, right? Family brings Spot home. Everyone's happy. The kids play with Spot. They feed Spot. They love Spot. Eventually... Uh, parents go away. Kids are watching Spot on their own, right? And then the parents come back later, and what happens? Uh, something is clearly not right with Spot, and the parents say, you know, what ha- what's going on here? Like, what's going on with Spot? And one of the kids, you know, little cute kid says, well, well, you know, Spot looked cold and bored, so I let him out, you know, to run around a little bit. Now he's just napping in the sun. And, you know, that would be nice, except... Spot is a fish, right? And so now they took Spot out of the bowl and Spot's uh, lying out in the sun. And then, you know, that usually leads to the, the funeral trope. You know, you got to flush the fish down the toilet and then they have this whole funeral thing. And, you know, it's understandable. It's a goldfish. Sadly, we also do this to one another as human adults. We think we're doing loving things when, in fact, we may be doing harm because our quote-unquote love is not based in the knowledge and wisdom of the word and the application of the gospel. Do you pray? (laughs) Let me just ask you. Do you pray for knowledge and wisdom, like discernment in how to love people. Have you prayed that before? Because usually I think what we assume is we all know how to love people. What we need is strength, right? What we need is, is perseverance or determination. What we need is just, just like the will to do it. But we know how to love. But what Paul is, is pointing out here is actually we don't even know how to love. We need the Bible to teach us how to love. How to love our spouse and how to love our kids and how to love our parents and how to love one another and how to love our neighbor. We actually need to pray for wisdom and discernment in how to love. Now, to balance this out, knowledge without love isn't any better than, you know, love without knowledge. We need both. Right? We need love-saturated truth and truth-saturated love. You know, very quickly before we move on to the last point, I would just say, in terms of application, okay, there's a couple applications we can pull from this. One, pray for wisdom and discernment in how to love in truth. Like, actually pray for that. Like, for yourself. Right? Pray that God would teach you as you spend time in the word obviously we need to know the word we need knowledge to be able to apply it and so we need to spend time in the word but we also need just 
to pray that God would give us the wisdom to be able to apply that knowledge to our context, to our situation. How do I love this person? You know, even now, like when you come to this service, even though it's, it's distanced and, you know, it's online, all that stuff, like pray, God, I don't know if you've prayed this or if you pray this on Sundays, but God, give me wisdom and discernment to love people in truth today. Give me that. Lead me there. Another application that we can do is when you pray for other people, that this is Paul's situation, when you pray for somebody else, when you intercede on behalf of someone, include this in your prayer because they'll probably have prayer requests, right? Pray for those things. But include this in your prayer. God, give so-and-so wisdom and discernment to love people in his or her life. Pray for gospel-centered discernment in love. Now, here's a final thing. Uh, Pray that you will grow in affection for what is truly excellent. Pray that you will grow in affection for what is truly excellent. If you look back at the text, verse 10, uh, it says, So that, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. So he's saying, your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment. So the, the purpose of that is so that we will ultimately be able to, uh, you know, when it talks about like approving, it is kind of, uh, it is this sense of upholding, like uplifting, like enjoying what is excellent. And that could be translated as superior, like what is best So what we pray for is that in this loving, in this growing affection for the the love that God has for us, that's going to grow us in affection for one another. It's going to lead us to pray for one another, that we will be able to love one another and others properly. And as we do that, as we grow in that, we start to see what God sees. We start to appreciate what God appreciates. Again, because, well, I should say this. When I was in high school, um, I started playing drums, right? So previous to that in my life, I'd never played the drums, you know. Um, I'd, I hadn't really played anything, you know, any instrument, like, really seriously. Like, I play guitar, you know, and piano and things like that. But not, like, really seriously. And then when I was in high school, I started playing drums for, like, youth group. Um, I just tried it once. And I was, like, you know, pretty good at it just at the beginning. So I, I started getting into it. And I would, like, practice beats at home. I'd, like, buy some drumsticks. And I would just, like, practice you know, and then I would st- I would try to do these little like stick tricks. <laughs> you know, do like I'd start doing like paradiddles. You know, I'd, and then I started listening to uh, a lot of different kinds of music that I wasn't into prior to that. I started listening to like all these rock bands. I started listening to like when I would listen to like hip hop or rap. I started noticing different things. I would hear things in the track. I would hear these little beats, things like that. And then I would like watch these videos of of drummers. Like I would, I would watch like Carter Buford and like you know Jay Weinberg and stuff. Like I would watch like, and I would practice. You know, and I'd get into it, and all of a sudden I'd start appreciating things. 
you know, I, I started appreciating rap a lot more. Like, you know, rappers would go off beat and there'd be these kind of syncopated things and they'd come back on the beat and these different rhyme schemes. And all of a sudden, like, all these things were opened up that I never heard or noticed before, but then they became really interesting to me. And that, you know, for a long time, I used to, like, play drums. I don't really do that anymore. But um, I started, like, w what I thought was was kind of amazing or, or beautiful changed and it morphed as I grew in, in knowledge and as I pursued it, right? Like when you studied something, like when you get into something, you start to notice things that other people don't, right? Like you hear a certain a line under something. You know, if somebody said, like if somebody's describing something, if I were to say like a, you know, double crossover, hezzy, sham god, you know, spin move, fade away. Like some of you guys are like, what the heck? Who's sham god? You know, like you, you might not know what that is. If you're into basketball, you know what that is, right? You see the difference between certain things and like art. You taste the different hints or the notes. You recognize a play on words. You you say, oh, the, the, the perfect placement. You know, you look at a blueprint. You look at a painting. You see a, a dress. You see things that other people don't. How does that happen? Because over time, your passion, your affection for that develops, and you grow in it, and then you appreciate it, and then you start to recognize, oh, that is excellent. Like, that is superior. That is praiseworthy. Now, two things about that. One, for some reason, we do not apply the same logic to God. Right? It's like we kind of assume that we should be able to see all the beauty of God immediately. But that's not really how it works, right? Like, if you haven't read the Bible in, like, a really long time and then you just pick up the Bible one random day and you read some random passage, you're not going to be like, oh, my gosh, like, this is so, this is so amazing. Like, you don't even know who the characters are. You don't understand any of the historical context. You just, like, pick it up and read it. Because that's kind of how we do it sometimes, right? It's just, like, totally random. We are expecting some nugget to fall out of the sky. God will drop you know, just drop the grace of the gospel, the beauty of the gospel on our heads, and we're just going to suddenly, like, read the Bible that one day, and then we're going to go out and save people. But that's not, I mean, nothing's like that, right? You didn't pick up a ball the first time and then suddenly think, wow, you know, I'm going to be a great tennis player, you know? Of course not. Nobody does that. That's not how it works. But here's the, here, so, so it's weird that we think that when it comes to Christianity, and we probably shouldn't. But here's the other thing, okay? All those, all the, the beauty and the majesty and kind of the excellence that's everywhere, you know, in the, in the stitching, in the fibers, like, you know, in those, in the taste, like all those things that you could possibly find, all of those excellent, superior, you know, just masterful things, like, how amazing do you think it is to get deep into understanding the one who designed all of that? 
right? Because all of that excellence comes out of God. Like everything that you, when I say excellent, what do you think about? You know, when I say think about something excellent, right? Something superior, of superior quality. What do you, what do you think about? Right? Is it, is it some sport? It's some person? You know, it's some skill? It's some ability? Some, some piece of art? Some movie? What do you think about? Right? Whatever that is, what, what you find most interesting in the world, most excellent in the world, is an, is a, is an infinitesimal fraction of the beauty and the glory of God. Because that's only, literally, that's a fraction of God. That's a tiny piece of God, of the glory of God. That's just one little sliver of the excellence that exists in him. How much more depth of appreciation and joy and power do you think exists in the one who sourced all of that? That's what God has in store for us as we pursue him. That's the kind of informed affection that we experience, that we glory in, that we know when we understand how absolutely ludicrous his love for us is, the fact that that's the glory of God, and then he, he deeply cares. He has this deep affection for you. For you. A dot in the universe. And yet the Bible says he knew you before the creation of everything. He knew you from the beginning. He had a plan. He has a plan for your life. Your days are exactly numbered. He knows when he's going to see you face to face. He's got it all planned out for you because that's how he cares for each one of his children. That's how much he loves us. The affections that God has for us inspired by the gospel, they are deeper and more powerful than any other we can ever imagine. Let us devote ourselves. Let us dedicate ourselves. Let us commit ourselves to the pursuit of such things so that we can deeply enjoy all that God has, not the, not the kind of shallow things that the world has to offer, but the, the deep affection that's in Christ. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much that in you there is this incredible just joy and passion and love and life that you have for us, God. We do confess, You know, for for many of us, God, we may have been trying to get at those affections and those passions and that joy and that life bypassing the gospel, God, bypassing Jesus and trying to reverse engineer, you know, the fun, the, the happiness, 
the depth. And if that is the case uh, for any of us, God, we really pray that you would, uh, you know, we want to confess, God, we want to repent. We pray, God, that you would help us to see, open the eyes of our hearts, that we would see how much more beautiful and glorious you are than the things that the world has to offer. God, that trying to get at joy, uh, trying to get at fellowship, trying to get at love without Christ, God, is not only oxymoronic, God, but it would be terrible. You are the foundation that we need, God, of our joy, of our love, of our life, of our affection. We pray, God, that as we slowly but faithfully exercise that faith in you, you would you would faithfully hear us and develop us and grow us and transform us into the image of you. We thank you that you do that, God. We trust that you will. Uh, we entrust ourselves, uh, our church, just our lives to you. Uh, we love you and we give you all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.